0: In 313 AD, Constantine proclaimed Christianity as a legal religion inside the Roman Empire, one of the first steps to Christianity becoming the most prominent religion within the Roman Empire. On Constantine's deathbed, he was baptised by Eusebius of Nicomedia. However, it is debated if he was really a Christian or converted for political benefits. So, was he really the first Christian emperor? Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the AIQ Podcast. My name is Alexander Goodman and on this episode we're talking about Constantine. Was he the first Christian
1: Emperor? We have a special guest here today, Ozzy Major. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, my name is Ozzy Major. I'm a third year ancient history student at the University of Wales in Lampeter with Alex here. And I'm writing my dissertation on Constantine the Great and his religious practices. So we're going
0: to start with a brief history of Christianity, leading up to it becoming the primary faith of the Empire. And it all starts with someone called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, contrary to a lot of popular thought surrounding Christianity, there is significant amount of evidence out there to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth was, at the very least, a real person.
1: Yes, so we do have ancient sources from the time, both from pagan and Jewish writers, as well as Christian writers. Our major piece of written evidence comes from a Jewish author called Josephus and primarily from book 18 of his Antiquities of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Josephus was a Jewish writer writing in the first century AD. He was a general in the Jewish revolt and was captured by the to be Emperor Vespasianus. He writes during the time when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. There was a wise man named Jesus who was known for his teachings, and Josephus also describes him as a doer of wonderful works. Mm -hmm. Josephus also goes on to write about how Pilate and the Jewish officials crucified Jesus. Mm -hmm. He then goes on to claim that following the death of Jesus, his followers claimed to see him rise from the dead, and these followers went on to become known as the Christians.
0: Mm, Because you're talking about some of the pagan writers as well So one of them we have is the Roman author Tacitus Who writes about a man named Christus uh, From who the Christians get their name He, like Josephus, also writes about Christus How he was crucified by Pontius Pilate During the reign of Emperor Tiberius And that's in Tacitus Annals uh, Book 15 Another one we have is Suetonius in his Deus Claudius, as he also mentions that the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews uh, from Rome as they had been making a lot of disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is probably a misspelling of Christ. Um, This further suggests that Christians were seen as the followers of a Christ. It is also worth noting that during the first century AD, many Roman authors that we see talking about Christians do not differentiate them from the Jews and they are considered a branch of Judaism and not their own thing. This is likely the case as far as the Roman government is concerned, but this probably changes towards the end of the first century AD. So when Christianity began, it was incredibly localised within the Roman province of Judea, and you may be wondering how it spread so far and widely and so quickly then,
1: and eventually became the state religion of the empire.
0: Can you explain this a little bit?
1: So Christianity is predominantly a proselytizing religion, mm-hmm. which means it relies on sending out missionaries to spread the faith, as it were, spread the word of God. Yeah. So the most famous of these Christian missionaries was a man named Saul of Tarsus. That's um, Paul in the Bible, isn't yes. it? Yes, he's also yeah. known as the Apostle Paul, yeah. after he changes his name. He, as I said, he was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a well-known persecutor of Christians in the city of Jerusalem, mm. he himself being a Jewish official. This changed when he was on the road to Damascus, when it said that he saw a vision of Christ, and that's when he converted to Christianity away from Judaism. Mm-hmm. After this conversion, he spent the remainder of his life travelling around the Roman world, predominantly in the Levant, Asia Minor, and Greece. So for any listeners who don't know where the Levant is, or Asia Minor, Asia Minor is
0: modern-day Turkey, and the Levant is middle, the Middle East, so about Lebanon and Syria areas.
1: Um, so that's the region he was travelling in. Uh, when he was going around proselytizing, it's said that he had a very high conversion rate mm-hmm. for converting the lay to Christianity. It is said that he also visited Rome towards the end of his lifetime.
0: I well, imagine that would have been quite an important thing for him as well, uh, yes. because Rome is, you know, the the main city of the empire. It's a bustling place. It's thought to have over a million people at some points in their empire. So there's a lot of people that he could try and convert.
1: Yes, yes, he, he did go to Rome, massive metropolitan city. However, this is where. Paul did meet his end as he was killed by the Romans and turned into a martyr. The Book of Acts tells us of Paul's journey around the Roman world.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: His journeys are split up into three distinct parts. Mm. In his first journey, he travelled to Antioch, Mm -hmm. and then to Cyprus, and then southern Asia Minor, before returning to the city of Antioch. Paul's second journey then took him from Jerusalem to Antioch, Mm -hmm. and then up through Asia Minor again, up into Greece this time, where he went all the way through the Greek peninsula to Athens, and then he returned to Jerusalem via another stop in Asia Minor again.
0: Okay, so he's really, every single time he's gone another journey, he's making sure he's going to new provinces, to new places to, yes. you know, to get, get, the, get the faith around, the, yes, the, spread the word.
1: Proselytised by going to further lands, meeting new people. Yeah. There, even though they were within the Roman Empire, all mm. these people had different cultures, their own Faiths within the Roman religion. Yeah. So they could target each individual group. Yeah. Instead okay. of appealing to one broad Rome, you mm-hmm. have the people of Athens, the people of Corinth, the people of Thrace. Because mm. so what we remember, th-
0: these these cities are also huge. Uh, Rome is obviously the biggest, but Athens is a ginormous city. Even cities like Corinth, you know, would have a very large population. So just yeah. going to one of these would really help the Christian
1: faith spread. Yes. Very easily. Paul's third journey was largely the same route as his second journey. However, this time his route through Asia Minor changed to include a journey to Ephesus and the Troad region of northwest Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. His route through Greece was also different this time.
0: Okay, all right, so. Well, for the audience, you guys might be wondering why any of this is important. Uh, Why is Paul going across these uh, places, spreading the word of Christianity important? The reason is because it really seemed to have actually worked. Because a lot of these places he visited started to establish churches, and this continued for quite a long time. And many of them were major centres for Christianity before um, Constantine and after him. So without the actions and deeds of the Apostle Paul, Christianity would probably not have spread and grown as quickly as it did in the first century AD, and that it is unlikely that it would ever have become the state religion in uh, the Roman Empire. He's probably quite a pivotal person in the spreading of the faith. So another really important and major aspect of the history of Christianity and the church is that the followers of Christianity were eventually heavily persecuted um, for just following their faith and it seems to begin pretty early on in the history of the church can you uh, go into this a little bit because it's quite an interesting topic we see in the book of acts in the bible Oh, I just want to jump in here and just say that although it is in the Bible, modern scholarship has nowadays said that this is a historical source and can be used historically. So don't worry about any biases in, the, in these conversations. We're going in a neutral um, neutral way and we are using it as a historical
1: um, source. So in the various places that Paul visits, he's often chased out of these cities mm. and he's threatened with violence from the inhabitants there. So we can see that even as early on in Christianity as its very first days, Christians are persecuted. In the book of Acts, the author, we presume to be Luke, records of Paul's missionary work in Ephesus. Mm. And it is said that he was so successful that the people who ran the businesses making the shrines and the offices for the Temple of Artemis had suffered greatly because people were converting away. So they were running them out of business. Mm. This caused a riot in the city led by the silversmith called Demetrius, in which rioters took some of Paul's travelling companions and tried to have a hearing in front of the mob, who were chanting, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. This eventually did quell the mob, Mm. before any violence happened. However, Paul and his companions did manage to flee the city before anything happened to them. Okay. There are a lot of other examples of this in the Book of Acts, but we don't have enough time to discuss all of them, as we could be here for a little bit.
0: No, of course. And um, well, probably one of the most famous examples of persecution in the early, uh, early Christianity. And when it happens, it is in Rome. Uh, during the reign of the Emperor Nero. And this account comes from Tacitus, one of the pagan writers uh, talking about Christianity in the Annals. And he describes Nero's actions in blaming the Christians um, in Rome for starting the great fire of Rome, which we all know he sort of started to build his palace, or at least that's one theory. Um, Here Tacitus describes that Nero punished the Christians who likely did not actually start the fire. He writes that they were torn apart by animals, uh, crucified or burned alive. All quite barbaric ways to um, to kill someone. Yeah. And that these punishments were so cruel and severe that even the general public began to feel sympathy for the Christians. And at this time, Christians had quite a negative idea and um, mindset from most of the general public. So to get this sympathy coming off them is quite, it shows that these um, these torture, tortures and punishments were quite severe. Yeah. Um, Tacitus instead offers two possibilities, either that the fire was accidental, or that Nero himself started it, but does not give a uh, definite reason. And you can find that in Tacitus Annals Book 15, So the persecution of Christians continues on through much of the period leading up to Constantine, particularly towards the end of the third century AD. Um, As a result, Christianity remained an underground religion in the empire as the members feared persecution. And it really stayed this way until um, Constantine in the early fourth century AD. it was. It became almost as though it was a cult that could never be talked about or heard about. Um, there's a couple of excavations that's happened in Italy where the basement has been turned into a, a shrine as such for Christians. It was very hush-hush, it seemed, at the time. So that's how Christianity came about, and that's how it came to uh, prominence and started to really um, rise and become what we know it today, because without all these... Um, apostles going around and then almost the persecution as well uh, and then Constantine coming and making it legal without all these ebbs and flows and changes it probably wouldn't have become such a widespread faith uh, that we have today in the world that probably is only um, challenged in size by Islam but we touched a bit on the persecution and we think that's really interesting so we really want to uh, explore why were they persecuted and, and why was the faith resisted in certain areas and was it due to Christianity claiming that there was only one religion? Because prior to Christianity, you only had one other religion doing that, and that was Judaism. So have you, in your writings, uh, and in your undergraduate uh, degree, found any reasons as to why they're persecuted?
1: Uh, yes. So in the early Roman writings, we can see that the Christians are not seen in the best way by the Romans. Mm. They they weren't particularly fond of them. Mm. Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, they all described Christianity as superstitio, which was a negative term used by the Romans that implied that it was overly obsessed with religion. Mm. Almost, like we get the word superstition, yes. Yes, that's probably mm. where it comes from, I guess. Cicero defines superstitio as the empty fear of the gods, mm. and this term is often used to describe excessive and unnecessary enthusiasm and devotion in religious practices. hmm It was considered to be the vice of men and an undesirable quality for a good Roman citizen to have. Mm. Moving into the early 2nd century AD, superstitio is used more regularly to describe people who Mm. resisted the religious pluralism and polytheism of the day. Mm. Because we still remember in this world, 99% of the people were worshipping polytheistic gods, Mm. opposed to the monotheistic of Christianity and Judaism. So, it was actually both the Christians and the Jews that were being
0: persecuted for their beliefs of a uh, monotheism God, which means just one God. And we can see the persecution through the Jews with attacks, and they were attacked because of their faith. Another way that the Christians were persecuted was because of their refusal to participate in uh, Roman religious festivals, because it was seen as they were refusing to conform to Roman rule, so could you explain how they were persecuted by that?
1: Yeah, of course. So, we see in Pliny's Epistale 10 that he writes to the current Emperor Trajan to ask for advice on how to deal with Christians in Bithynia, mm. which is roughly where modern day Istanbul is, the yep. other side of the Bosporus, when he was the governor of the region. Mm. In the letter, he details the trial of the people who were anonymously accused of being Christians. There was no mention of any specific crime that these people had committed mm. other than being a Christian, which suggests to us that. That was the crime itself of just being a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The exact reason for why this happened is unknown, but it is generally agreed upon that it would have been the refusal to worship in the Roman religious festivals that you touched on earlier, yeah. and to worship their polytheistic gods, which goes quite a bit against the doctrine of Christianity. Yes. Whatever the reason, Pliny records that he gives the Christians multiple chances to show that they are innocent, but they all refuse and he then goes on to sentence them. But doesn't Pliny also record that in his investigations
0: he reveals nothing about uh, Christians other than the harmless practices and how they are depraved and have excessive superstition? and he also expressed his concern about the um, spread of superstition in his province and viewed the christians as a pos- as a possible cause for it and it does seem that they really don't like this idea of superstition within the roman empire
1: no and another way to look at it is this new jewish sect is rising and is trying to challenge the gods of the roman world effectively mm. so pliny and other governors might not like the idea of these Jewish and Christian missionaries coming into their Mm. lands denouncing their Roman gods such as Jupiter and Saturn Mm. instead of one singular monotheistic god.
0: Yeah, because in Roman society, society and religion is so intertwined that if you start to upset the religion, you may start to upset legal aspects, you may start to upset social dynamics. You know, this can actually be quite problematic for the Roman Empire and especially the administrators who are running it.
1: Very much so. Even to the emperors themselves, hmm. who were the Pontifex Maximus, which was the head priest of the College of yeah. Pontiffs. Yeah. So to say in this province that the Emperor is the head of a false church, as yeah. it were. Yeah. Or false set of gods. False set of gods, this could definitely upset the balance in the region. Yes. Which is not good for public support, morale, etc. So
0: you can really see why they were being persecuted so hard. Yes. And that although it's not condoned, you know, and it's not right, you can sort of understand why these actions were taken. Yes. Mm. So on this point about Christianity potentially being disrupted to Um, the social environment, you can also see it was socially disruptive. And this is because of two reasons. So firstly, Christianity was inclusive and ignored the social hierarchy within Rome. And so it was seen as disruptive and a threat to the order of Roman society. Christians would often talk about impending disasters and judgment from God and things like that, and that would make many of the pagan neighbours and um, people within cities a bit uncomfortable as there are external powers that they aren't familiar with that could bring an end to everything they know.
1: Yes, to touch on what you said about the hierarchy of Rome, mm. the Christians obviously had their one god of worship, yeah. which went directly against the idea of the imperial cult, Yes. where the emperor and previous emperors were venerated to uh, almost a, well, a divine status. Yeah. Even Vespasian joked on his deathbed that he was becoming a god. Mm this would not sit very well with the Christians, No. so you can see that they would refuse the, the imperial cult as well, mm. which is very disruptive to the hierarchy.
0: Yes, because um, through the imperial cult, um, some scholars argue that that's how a lot of emperors managed to get their authority across and stay in control of the empire. They had Became, they had got an image from society that they were a god, and they would become a god. And to go against this, you know, yes. would anger the um, the gods as well.
1: However, even during the reign of Constantine, we still see that Constantine practices the imperial cult. Yes, he yes. does. Later, go on to almost diminish it, mm. but it is still there.
0: Mm. So as we can see, it's quite complex when Christianity comes into society. But secondly, many people in the period believed that disaster would befall if the traditional pagan gods were not properly worshipped. And when Christians didn't conform to this or worship these gods, they were the ones who caused disasters. And it's really interesting because you can see this in the 2nd century AD where the uh, Christian apologist Tertullian complains about the misconception about Christians where they were the cause of
1: all the disasters Disasters that befell the people in the Roman Empire. Yeah, doesn't he say along, along the lines of that they were the cause of every public disaster? Yes, he does. And that they were the cause of every affliction which the people affected. Mm. So we do actually have a quote from Tertullian mm-hmm. about this. Yep. And it says, If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens give no rain, if there is an earthquake, if there is a famine or pestilence, straight away the cry is, away with the christians to the lions
0: see that's really interesting because um some of those were quite normal events so with the um the tiber the tiber would flood with heavy rain the the nile has a yearly flooding system where after one every four years the the nile will not flood correctly so it's almost as though the christians are always going to be damned and persecuted for events that cannot prevented because they're normal in the ecological system of Egypt, for instance. So that's quite interesting that Christians
1: are getting the brunt of all these natural disasters. Especially as in the ancient world, natural events such as earthquakes and volcanoes were associated with the gods. Hmm. So you could have an earthquake and they would say, oh Jupiter is not impressed with what we've done, so we must sacrifice. Hmm. So to tie in these events which they know happen, and then linking them to Christians, as being the scapegoats mm. for these terrible mm. events happening, it fits in very nicely.
0: Because mm. you can kind of understand again why they were blaming So you've got these, this quite large group of people who are Christians who don't pray to the gods, who don't worship them, and don't conform to Roman rule as such. Um, and then you have all these disasters happening which they associate with the gods. You can see that they'll be able to see that the anger's coming from the gods, and well, who's the one who aren't helping? All the Christians, so it must yes, be the Christians' fault. A perfect scapegoat for them. Yeah, yes. Mm. So there are other forms of persecution also, and you can see it through Tertullian's apology. And most of these are uh, legalistic reasons, uh, so reasons that are more legally based. Um, so could you explain that to some degree?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. So Tertullian was a Christian in the 2nd century AD, mm-hmm. and he was frankly just a generally an annoyed man about how, <laughs> the, about how the Christians are being treated by yeah, Rome yes. and the people there. So, in his book titled Apology, which, as the title may suggest, is a work of Christian apologetics. Mm -hmm. Now, an apologetic is a book written in defense of something or someone, so in this case it's in defense of the Christians. Mm. In this book, Tertullian seeks to point out the hypocrisy and logical fallacies in how the Christians were viewed by, firstly, normal people, and secondly, by the Roman law.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: This begins with Tertullian pointing out that the only reason that the general Roman public at the time hated Christians was due to their ignorance, really, and their understanding of what Christianity and what the Christians actually didn't thought. Tertullian points out that when a normal criminal was charged with an offence, that they were allowed to defend themselves, but Christians were not afforded this luxury. And he writes instead that when the authorities had heard that someone was charged with being a Christian, They were just tortured until either they died or they confessed to being a Christian. Mm. So it just wasn't great for them.
0: Mm. So that's actually a bit similar to how uh, Pliny the Younger's episode happened, as we talked about earlier, where he gave them multiple examples, yes, with Trajan, where he gives them the opportunity to deny the fact that they are Christians. So I do wonder if um, you can see elements of these together. Obviously, we don't know if Pliny the Younger's um, ones were filled with um torture and things like that but it does make you think maybe they are related in some description and they were always persecuted like this and that was their options or their uh their chances to proclaim that they weren't christians was through the ways of torture
1: yeah so you had to Hmm. basically be tortured or denounce your faith
0: yes Doesn't he also address
1: uh, misconceptions of Christians that people had uh, from rumours? Yes, he does. So some of these may include the fact that Christians killed and ate babies. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, and that they were all incestuous. Right. So uh, they were adulterers and just other... Not great things that they were all accused of being?
0: Yeah, sort of like the things that the Roman um, state doesn't like. So, for instance, Augustus brings out legislation that makes um, the families inside uh, the Roman Empire um, stronger. And he has certain uh, laws put out against adultery. And from that time period on, adultery is seen as a very negative thing. And it seems like a lot of the things that... The Roman state doesn't like, and the Roman society is told not to do. Gets dumped on the Christians. Whether that's true or not, we can't. We can't really say because we don't have the evidence. and We weren't there, but we have to presume that these are all a bit exaggerated, and that they were just yes. dump problems on the Christians because they seemed like, as you said earlier, they were scapegoats. They are.
1: There was also the idea that the Christians were cannibals. Right. Oh, this one makes me oh. laugh a bit because in the well, in the Bible, it said that Christ, when he was giving the Last Supper. Yes. that his, the bread became his body, that his wine became his blood. Mm. And from an outside view, they were eating the body of a dead Jew and drinking his blood. Yes, you so can, you can, can <laughs> see how that spread <laughs> yeah, like that. construed that.
0: <laughs> so with all these fins uh, that were shown, it is also um, evident that Tertullian then, uh, in his writing, seeks to assure the reader that these weren't the case, and these weren't real, and this didn't really happen. So you can see then with all this persecution... I think I think you can see that they were persecuted because they did not fit a normality and that people were scared of what they could what Christians could do not just because they were following a faith because as we mentioned earlier the Jews did have attacks and they were persecuted like that but nothing to the degree that Christians were I think it's I think personally it's more that Christians were seen as a threat to the stability of the Roman Empire because yes. not only going against um, the pagan religion, they were going against society and the um, and the structures of hierarchy because they didn't see and acknowledge that. Uh, because they thought there was one god and one god was above all. That means he's mm-hmm. above the emperor and the emperor's not a god. All the religious organisations and institutions they are put in, yes. like the imperial cult, become meaningless and therefore authority therefore becomes meaningless. And it's all
1: threatened by... This one Jewish man from Judea effectively yes
0: Would yes um, and these of course as they are the followers of them they're the people who get blamed and they're the ones who get persecuted so as we uh, said in the title we're looking at Constantine if he was actually Christian himself as he was the first person legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire so who was Constantine well Constantine the great or Constantine the first was the Emperor of the Roman Empire where, first of all, he was Caesar of the West and then Augustus of the West in 312 AD. Now what that meant is, with how the hierarchy worked at this current time, you had the Augustus, who was the main emperor at the time of the West or the East, and then under them, they had an almost deputy who was Caesar. So Constantine, first of all, was Caesar of the West and then became Augustus, so the main person on the Western Roman Empire. And this was during a co-rule of four emperors during a Tetrarchy. Constantine eventually became the sole monarch of the Roman Empire, uniting the two regions together, the Eastern and the Western
1: Roman Empire. And this happened following his defeat of the co-emperor Maxentius, Mm. and then... Lycinius in 324 A.D.
0: Mm-hmm. So Constantine was born in Serbia and rose to prominence during his campaigns in Gaul with his father Constantius Chlorus, who was Caesar of the Western Roman Empire under Diocletian. Though the army, con- oh, through the army, he continued to gain political favor and support, especially through the military ranks.
1: So, in the early fourth century. Constantine was living with Galerius, Mm -hmm. out in the east, in primarily Bithynia. At that point, he went west Mm -hmm. to rejoin his father in his campaigns in Britain and Gaul. Mm. Uh, By this time, Constantius Chlorus' father was very old, he was ill, he was at death's doorstep, when sadly, in 306 AD, Constantius Chlorus died. Mm -hmm. At that point, the army that was stationed in Iboricum, modern-day York, along with Senon kings from Germania, they all proclaimed Constantine the Augustus of the West.
0: Oh right, so his father was Caesar and tried to make therefore Constantine
1: a step higher with the role of Augustus. Yes. So at this point Constantine was the Caesar of the West under Maximinus the Augustus. Maximinus stepped down and his son Maxentius took over. Constantine, ever the ambitious man he was, needed to remove Maxentius to take the rest of the Western Roman Empire, as he primarily had the provinces of Britain and Gaul. Which is modern-day France. Yes, modern-day France and Britain. So in 312, civil war erupted between Constantine and Maxentius, which culminated in the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This was a bridge over the Tiber, which is the main river going through Rome. It's just north, and at this point, Constantine defeated Maxentius and effectively secured what we know as the western half of the Roman Empire. So he is now Augustus, no longer Caesar. He is now Augustus, yes. Similarly what's happening in the east, the emperor Galerius is said to have been very ill, possibly cancer of some degree, so he stepped down and the emperor Licinius took over. So all the
0: Augustus and the Caesars, they are all emperors in their own right, but with different ranks.
1: They are fully fledged emperors. Mm -hmm. Think of the empire as divided into four parts. Yes. You have the Augustus taking the more important parts. Yep. And then their Caesar will be taking the less important parts. Okay. So the Caesar is still a fully fledged emperor. They are just below the Augustus, who is like an emperor plus one.
0: mm. So currently. Constantine and Licinius are both emperors. Yes. Of the Roman Empire. They're Great both
1: co-emperors, they're both equals. Yep. And at this point Constantine wants to make friends with Licinius. Yeah. He doesn't want to attack him. Constantine marries his half-sister Flavia Constantia to Licinius in more of an attempt to unite the two of them. Mm-hmm. As he doesn't want any bad blood between them.
0: Yes, because um from my recollection the Eastern Roman Empire is normally and I believe at this time period is also the stronger of the two.
1: Yes, there's definitely more wealth out there, there's more glory to be gained, it's mm. stronger. So yes. it may not be a fight
0: Constantine wants right now, and so he's looking at no. this political marriage as especially, a way to... Yes. Yes. yes,
1: especially at this point after he's just had one civil war against Maxentius, mm. he still needs to consolidate the Empire, regain his troops that would have lost because he yes. lost quite a few taking the city. Mm. So to start a war like Cineus at this point would just be absolutely pointless Mm -hmm. and he would lose yep so as you can imagine they're romans so they're not going to stay friends forever no (laughs) (laughs) their relationship breaks down surprise surprise when in 324 there is a civil war between the two Mm -hmm. in which constantine comes out the victor executing licinius and conquering well recapturing i should say the Mm -hmm. eastern roman empire Mm -hmm. bringing it under one augustus one god, one mm. empire, as Constantine said. Uh, this happened by 324 AD.
0: Mm-hmm. So the empire now is whole again with Constantine at the top.
1: Yes. Do you have a Caesar anymore? Do you have a deputy or is that also gone? You do have those. They were filled in by his sons, Constantine II, Constantius of course and Crispus. They were. <laughs> of course they were the all family. named after him. <laughs> but it, they're of less yes. importance. It becomes a bit more important after his death, yep. but from the period between his crushing of Maxentius Mm. to Licinius, it's not that prominent, I don't find.
0: Yeah, so this is where now you start to see changes that he enacts towards Christianity. Um, And so one of the most important ones is 325 AD, Constantine convenes the Council of Nicaea, where they start to codify Christianity, and they create the Nicene Creed, which sets out what Christians believe. And it takes parts from all different sects of Christianity, because at this point, although Christianity is unified, there's already different branches. I mean, I'm sure you can name a few. So
1: another point of the Council of Nicaea was to address the issue of Arianism. Mm. Arianism comes from the Bishop Arius of Alexandria, who believed in the idea that God the Father was more important than God the Son, as God the Father begot. God the son, so therefore he was more important. Mm. Although, we won't go into this too much because that's deep Christian theological debates. Yes, we might have a different podcast. We'll leave that there. But the gist of that was they didn't like that, so they were trying to excommunicate it and make it illegal. Yep. Although we then do have the issue of our greatest source for Constantine, Eusebius of Caesarea, was an Arian Christian. Right, okay. Which he may have been pushing Arian Christianity to Constantine, we can't really be sure, mm. so we'll leave that one mm. there. But what we do know is that the aim of this uh, this council
0: was to unify um, the church and yes. to get one Christianity. Um, great. But Constantine also does a lot of other stuff in his reign. There isn't so much... Um, to do with the Christian faith. So during his reign, he also refounds the city of Constantinople, which was on the site of Byzantium previously, um, yes. which is very important because Constantinople becomes the capital eventually and yes. becomes a
1: massive hub in um, the Eastern world. Yeah, and this founding takes place just after he defeats Licinius in battle there, mm-hmm. as he was held out in the city and Constantine more or less raises the city mm. and refounds it from the ground upwards, mm. turning it into not a new Rome, but effectively a new Rome, mm. yeah. A rival city to Rome I think is probably yes, the best way to say rival it. City.
0: So Constantine died in 337 AD, where on his deathbed he was finally baptised by Eusebius of Nicomedia.
1: To which point we should add that that is a distinctly different Eusebius to the chronicle we were talking about earlier. It doesn't help that in our time period there are three quite prominent men called Eusebius who are all bishops, who are all Christians and no Constantine.
0: When we talk about different people called Eusebius, we're going to try and really clarify who we're talking about because it can get confusing. So this was Eusebius of Nicomedia. His baptism then made Constantine the first Christian emperor. However, scholarship is still to this day debating about the year in which his conversion actually occurred as it may not actually be a requirement to have the baptism performed on Constantine for him therefore to become a Christian in this time period. So Constantine may have become a Christian earlier than his deathbed.
1: Because when we're looking at actually, the conversion to Christianity, we're trying to look at it in the ancient terms, opposed to the modern terms where it has to be a certain requirement, whereas back then, it, it we don't really know.
0: So, now we know who Constantine is and what he did in his life, we need to really address this idea of him and Christianity. So, how did he change to become more Christian? Because what we've got to remember is he's come into a pagan um, empire. He was a pagan growing up. Um, there are evidently pagan traits in him. So, we need to see what changes to become Christian. So,
1: can you start us off? What, what are the main features? The first interaction with Christianity that Constantine would have had would have been with his mother, Helena. or Helena. Uh, she was a Christian, although the sources aren't really in agreement as to when she was a Christian. Some believe it was before she had Constantine and some believe it was after his conversion. We, we, we don't know. So Christianity would have been introduced to him that way. He would have spent time with his mother but not that much when he was in the court of Galerius as he was out campaigning and doing military endeavours and service you know. and Service. So he wouldn't have had that much time with her. The greatest sign of Christianity came in 312 AD
0: mm-hmm.
1: following his civil war and just before its climax at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge the day before. It is said that Constantine saw a vision in the sky of a cross made of light with above it the words in hoc signo vinces, or in Greek, entoutonika, which means by this sign conquer. Right. This is believed that, to have been the Christian God trying to give Constantine a message. Mm. Constantine, as you know, a normal person would be, was rather confused by all of this. Yes. As imagine if you just saw some words in the sky and a sign, a bit odd. Went to sleep, and in the night it said that the Christ of God appeared to him, mm. and told him to paint the cipher of his name on his shields, and he would gain victory. What this meant was Constantine had to paint the Cairo, mm-hmm. the first two letters of Christ in Greek,
0: and that's an um, X, and then on top of it is a P, isn't a it? A P
1: going through it, yes, with the X like, like that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. So Constantine painted this on. He fought Maxentius the next day, heavily outnumbered and won. Mm-hmm. So, Constantine then was like, hey, this God, he's quite good and you he helped me win this, yes. I think I'll be a Christian now. Okay, Yes.
0: so this is when we start to think this is his first real step towards yes. Christianity. Yes.
1: Okay. yes, that to m- me personally is the point where he yeah. accepted Christianity as yes. his own religion. The next major, s- well, what's won't say major, the next interaction with Christianity we see with Constantine is a year later at the Edict of Milan, also called the Edict of Toleration in 313 AD. Mm -hmm. This was a edict co-authored by Constantine and Licinius. It was to grant religious rights to everyone. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter if you were a pagan, a Christian, or even an atheist back then, you were granted full religious freedom. Okay. It also returned properties and, well, Properties and funds stolen from Christians and the church back to them. Okay. As previous to Constantine, you had Diocletian and Galerius, who were both very anti Christian and often had mass persecutions mm. where they'd slaughter them, steal their property, take from the church. Mm-hmm. Constantine was attempting to rectify this. Right. So he gave it all back to them. Okay. And it was at this point that Lactantius, a Christian apologetic author, claimed that he saw Constantine as his hero for giving all this stuff back to the church. Right. Yes, as he was a breath of fresh air for the Christians.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: The next, say, interaction we see, might not necessarily be Christian, but it does quite allude to it heavily, is in 316. Right. Following his decanalia, his tenth year of being the emperor from 306, Constantine was having celebrations, as one would do, and Eusebius writes that he had these celebrations without smoke or sacrifice So, Constantine's moving away from making these blood sacrifices.
0: Mm. And just to clarify, this is uh, this celebration is for the
1: 10th anniversary of his
0: ascension to the throne. Yes, in 306. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so with that, you would presume blood sacrifices, as is normal with pagan sacrifices anyway, yes. would have been quite common and normalised.
1: Yes, because yes, you'd mm. make the sacrifice of a bull to Jupiter, Yes, that kind of thing. Constantine. So the fact
0: he's not doing it is quite important, and yes. I guess for the time, quite... Um, extravagant in yes, a way, especially
1: it's as as I said earlier, he was the Pontifex Maximus. He yes. is the head of the Roman Pantheon. Well, the Pontiffs of the Roman Pantheon, yes. I should say. So for him to not make the sacrifices, it's a bit odd, mm. really. Although we know Constantine hated blood sacrifices, mm-hmm. he refused to make throughout his time in the army. When Galerius made it punishable by death not to, right? So that's how stubborn he was in his way. Okay. This isn't the first time we see Constantine not making a sacrifice when it should be done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: After he defeated Maxentius in 312, he marched into the city of Rome to take it, parading Maxentius' head on a stick as one last... you to yeah. this rebel, as it were. Constantine does not make his way to the Capitoline Hill at any point to make a sacrifice. This is quite a normal thing, following a great victory. You make a sacrifice to Jupiter as thanks, Constantine just bypasses that completely mm. and goes doing other things. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Okay, so we so although we're saying it's a step towards christianity yes. and the christian faith some could actually argue that really it may just be personal preference because it's seen oh, yes. earlier that you know he doesn't just he doesn't like doing blood sacrifices at all. So um, yes I mean we can argue it is a step closer to christianity but it is also you know maybe it, maybe it's been interpreted wrong as well maybe that's yes. something of just a personal thing for himself but
1: but then by 323 AD we see Constantine passing a law or well, an edict banning all Christians in the empire from making these sacrifices as well
0: okay well the, then yeah then you can yes. definitely see a split there is of, yeah, a definite towards the faith.
1: build up in Constantine's laws that are pro-Christian and mildly anti-pagan yeah from the toleration where he said all men can worship with their own gods, something similar to that, up to in 324, when he then bans everyone from making the sacrifices. Mm. That's written in Eusebius.
0: Yeah, and that's throughout the whole empire, so that's not even just Christians then. That's everyone. That's
1: everybody. And in that same edict he passes, he bans the building of new temples, Mm -hmm. pagan temples I should say, and the erection of their statues and their idols and practices of magic, as he sees all that as antiquated and not Christian. Yes. Which is another point for the idea of the pro-Christian Constantine. Yeah. As a pagan man wouldn't go stopping pagan things yeah. being built. So he's he's, re-
0: he's really trying to stop the um, the circulation of the pagan faith yes. through, the, the, as you said, the temples and the statues. But isn't this in the same year that Constantine also stops um, one of the biggest pagan imageries around himself and that's on his coinage because... um. On his coinage, he used to have an image of Jupiter on it with his bust on one side and Jupiter on the other. Yes. Um, and so now he's stopping that. He's sort of disassociating himself with the head of the Roman pantheon because we have to remember Jupiter is the main panthenaic god. And so disassociating himself with him is a real big step away.
1: Yes. So as you said, that happens in 324, the same year. That is also the year that he defeated Licinius and mm. took all of Rome under one yoke. Right. This it was in three thirty four, so it's twelve years after Christ came to him, which is a bit of a while. But at the same time, he would probably have wanted to have all of Rome before he enacted these anti-pagan laws. I say anti-pagan laws throughout everywhere instead of having to do it a chunk here, yes. a chunk there kind of thing. Yeah. Although the first time we see Christian imagery on his coins is in three twenty where we see an image of a Cairo on the reverse of one of his coins. Which is the symbol he saw in the vision. Yes, the P and the X. So it's eight years later. I'm not really sure as to why there was such a delay, Mm -hmm. as after he defeated Maxentius, there was relative stability in the Empire. Yes. It may have just been a slowly phasing in kind of thing, which is quite more than likely, I believe, there. But then eventually, it's on them all. Mm -hmm. after he removes Jupiter and victory, and eventually Sol Invictus. So we can see more Christian iconography. Yes. From 324 up until his death in 337 AD, we can see Constantine redistributing money from the pagan temples and taking the artworks and the monetary stuff that was in there and using it to build his own Christian churches, cathedrals, basilicas, such Mm -hmm. as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Christ was buried, st Peter's Basilica, the first one in Rome itself on the site where Saint Peter was crucified, yep so we can see there is a distinct moving away from the pagan polytheistic ways to the new Christian. Yeah. well it, seems, it seems
0: more than just a movement because uh as we discuss he 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 tries to minimize it uh the pagan faith by um, stopping the erection of temple, or the construction of temples and the building of statues and the circulation of that and now he's going to step further and he's taking money away from the already established pagan temples and pumping it into churches and yes. that I would only, I would have to presume is more of trying to not only um, stop the circulation of that faith, but also decline it, you know, yes. have less money there, they can do less things, they can have less rituals, rest, less sacrifices, and, you know, uh, stop mm-hmm. the maintenance.
1: He does then go one step further in some places mm-hmm. by actually destroying the pagan temples, such as the Temple of Aphrodite in the Lebanon, yeah. which mm-hmm. is quite a step further than just stopping the erection of new ones by destroying their places of worship. Yeah, It's a very big... Christianity is the dominant, paganism is the subordinate, effective way. So by trying to minimise their worship, as you said, it's very much paving the way Mm -hmm. for this new Christian God Mm -hmm. to be dominant. And
0: then, of course, the last last feature that makes him more step closer towards Christianity is, as we've already mentioned, he gets baptised on his deathbed, which is a uh, Christian um, practice... um, to become fully
1: into the faith with the baptisms the the idea of the baptism is to wipe away your sin so when you die you can go to heaven one idea well, one argument i should say why constantine was baptized so late constantine was an emperor an emperor has quite a nasty life in what they have to do for the empire so he would probably want to get all the bad things out the way first and then go in with a clean slate this mm. was a common practice back in those times for instance, Constantine murdered his son, Crispus because he was accused of having an affair with Constantine's new wife, not Crispus's mother. They weren't incestuous, <laughs> although it was then found out that that was a lie, and then Constantine executed her right. so Constantine had a habit of not being a great guy, let's say, yes, there was also the constant wars and the thousands that died because of him, and yes, yes. you know you. Probably wasn't the best of people, Mm. so you'd probably want to get that all wiped away right at the end, just before you bite the dust.
0: Yeah, but there are some things that maybe point towards him being not so much of a Christian, or at least not a Christian when we believe he becomes um, a Christian. So some of these points I'm just going to briefly go over. So during his time in the province of Gaul in 310 AD, which is quite early on in his reign, um, Constantine sees a vision of Apollo and victory who um, says to him that he would rule the whole world, yeah. um, which is quite interesting because you have the two parallels then. you have the, the vision of Apollo and victory and the uh, vision of Christ. Yes. Uh, and the vision of Apollo and victory comes first. Um, I don't know what that would mean um, to his faith itself, but if he is... At least recognizing in his life that there he has seen Apollo and he has seen victory. Does that therefore mean he believes in them and he recognizes there are other gods? I don't know, but it's definitely something that confuses me, especially when it comes to if he was a Christian. I'm sure you probably know what other so stuff as well.
1: This vision of Apollo and victory comes from the 6th Pangerekee Latini, which is an oration done in 310 in Gaul. The idea of that was it. It's not meant to be spread throughout the empire. It's something that would be read every so often in that province. Right. Gaul being modern-day France. So, one belief by scholars is that it was a morale boost, because if you saw the emperor come to your city or your town, and he had a meeting from the gods, it would re- reaffirm his legitimacy, his strength, because mm-hmm. they were still very much the emperor and the gods uh, hand in hand together. Yes. And. During this interaction with Apollo, it's said that Constantine saw Augustus, the first emperor, yeah. in Apollo, right. almost saying to him that he is the new Augustus, right. with reclaiming everything, mm. whether that's what actually happened, or that's just some pagan spinning on it, effectively. Right. So we're not 100% sure there, but it's more than likely a morale boost kind of thing, the way it's been spun.
0: Okay. right. Um, So it could it could have been um, a vision of Apollo and victory, or it could have been um, more of other people interjecting and putting that onto the event. Um,
1: But we'll never know.
0: We'll never know. Yeah. So we always have to consider it. So I know that also he then later on did uh, coinage. So he was minting coinage uh, with pagan imagery for 12 years, as you said earlier, after his vision of Christ um, during his first civil war. And this could have been used probably for political purposes. uh, Coinage was a very great way to spread such... Propaganda and things like that. And as uh, Roman paganism was still the main religion of the time, he could use that to assert his reign and also his own authority and power. Um, So it could be a tool for him. However, I would argue if he was fully converted or Christianized, then the production of coinage with other deities on it would have been very unlikely, as it may disregard the idea that there is only one god and there are no others, um, which is an essential element to Christianity as they would not
1: subscribe to syncretism. However, on the flip side, if Constantine had then, right after his victory, started producing images of the Christian God and Cairo and Christ on these coins, it would quite heavily upset the zeitgeist at the time by just disregarding all these pagan gods in favor of one God, it wouldn't, probably wouldn't have sat very well with the population. No, and that's why
0: it would pr- most likely be a um, a political move yes. to have this coinage. But it is that problem of that sort of morality of Christianity. If you do believe in just the one God and you cannot accept any other gods, this action, you know, d- does it mean that he's actually Christian at this point? He may proclaim he's a Christian, but, you know, you've got to believe to be a Christian. So He may have been looking
1: yes. at they the Christian God in a henotheistic way. Yes. In the idea that he accepts there is one God, but acknowledges the other gods. Right. Which may very well have happened, but I do believe it's more for the not wanting to accept the populace at the time. Yep.
0: Okay. There is also other problems that um, Constantine has when it comes to the pagan uh, religion. And one of them is through the title Pontifex Maximus, yes. uh, which all emperors have, which means, as you've said earlier, the, um, the high priest or the head priest. Um, so he never actually removes the title Pontifex Maximus, and um, this title, as I've just said means that he's the head of the Roman College of High Priests, which is inherently incorporated into the Roman Pantheon, um, and is actually considered by uh, the people of Rome and the populace to be a very important aspect of Roman religion yeah. um, so this refusal to remove um, himself from this position could have been a way to hold on to pagan traditions that he held and and practices and maybe he would do it um, you know, in secret or not on a public display so even though he appears to be more Christian he does have this little title sticking around which could mean a bit more than what he's given out. Yes. But I'm sure you probably have a counter-argument to that.
1: So we can see that Ponsonene goes on to ban sacrifices. Mm. Stevenson argues that when he banned these sacrifices it was only to do with the imperial cult Yes, and, uh, apparently, the, the empirical side of the sacrifices and traditions. Mm. This is contrary to what Eusebius claims, right. where he claims it was spread across the board. Mm. which I do believe to be more likely but then mm. we do have to take Eusebius with a pinch of salt being a Christian bishop writing about all of this Yes. so by this point Con- Constantine may have seen Pontifex Maximus as I actually like another name that goes with it like pater familiar that kind mm-hmm. of thing it was just another title he had and he just didn't do anything yeah. with it because we know the last time he did something as Pontifex was in 315 AD yep. and after then there's nothing more about him as Pontifex, mm-hmm. so it's probably just just kept it as an honorific title, yes, as opposed to a job description.
0: So as we can see, there are there are things for him being Christian and things for him, I wouldn't say not being Christian, but holding on to pagan traditions. It's casting um, doubt. Yes, it does cast doubt over it. And although we may never know exactly if he actually believed in Christianity or if he still hold on to these, held on to these pagan. Uh, traditions what we do know is that this had a massive effect not only for Christianity but for the Roman Empire so let's have a little look into that so how did Constantine's reign and legalizing Christianity affect not only Christianity but also the Roman Empire
1: so by legalizing Christianity and effectively making it I'm say cool to be Christian it allowed more and more people to convert freely without fear of being persecuted like under Diocletian and Galerius, where they would just sporadically just go around slaughtering Christians, yes, which isn't a great thing. So it allowed people to practice their religion more freely, more openly. So that allowed it to spread even more. Like the amount of Christians in the empire rose from something about six million to thirty-six million mm-hmm. in fifty years. That's a humongous trend. Yeah, which by that point was about three quarters of the empire. Yes, that's which massive. Was, which was crazy. So it managed to spread a lot, up until 380 AD, when the Emperor Theodosius I passed the Edict of Thessalonica in February, which made Christianity the official religion of the Roman state. Mm-hmm. And by that point it was, the majority of the population were Christian anyway. Yes. Between Constantine and, well, Constantine Eleventh, Palaiologos in 1453, there was only one more pagan emperor, and that was Julian the upper state. But apart from that, everyone from that point on, Christian. Yes. So it changed everything. Christianity then spread throughout the world, even till today where it's affected two-thirds of the population Mm -hmm. have come into it. It's crazy, just from the will of this one man.
0: So, yeah, with this rise, as you just mentioned, of the Christianity, one way we can speculate that this probably happened was through... The Edict of Toleration um, would probably have largely increased Christianity in the elites. So the elites in the in the Roman Empire would probably use Christianity not only as you know now, now a new religion and maybe their own faith, but also as a tool for political use. Um, if they know that the emperor is uh, Christian and bishops are on the rise and they're starting to gain more power. Perhaps turning to Christianity would have been a way for them to have increased their own political power and the way that people perceive them, and so they could climb to the ranks a lot quicker. Yeah. So you can see that by um, Constantine uh, legalizing Christianity, I mean, the lower classes could now come back out uh, away from hiding and yeah. publicly. Um, Spread uh, Christianity and practice Christianity without the threat of persecution, and also elites were now could be potentially pushing this, um, pushing this religion for their own political use. You could see how it could spread to every single part of yes. the of the society, and. Um, and you can see how strong Christianity becomes, because we're future emperors, as you said, uh, only one is pagan. Yeah. But we're future emperors uh, who prescribe to Christianity, and being the state of the empire, pagan temples and people who started to, who were um, practising the pagan faith, started to get persecuted themselves, like the Christians were, um, with the destruction of sacred sites and temple complexes. So as you've got Christianity rising up, you've got pagan ideas and religions on the down, on the decline. Um, And it's just a really interesting thing to see how the Roman Empire has changed from the Roman gods and uh, the the Roman faith to now going towards a Christian one and how dominant it is and how quickly it becomes dominant. So in conclusion, Let's wrap up some of the thoughts. So I can I can see how the Christian uh, faith spread so quickly with people like um, the apostles spreading the word, traveling around. Um, I can also understand how um, the f- Christian faith was used as political tools for people and spread that way. Um, and it is. Even though it is so extreme how quickly Christianity spread, um, I can see that it had a purpose for people, not only through faith and through religion, but also you know, through politics. Um, so I'd like to get you to weigh in a bit and have your opinion. So Constantine the Great or the First, was he the first Christian
1: emperor? Was he actually a Christian? What do you believe? So I believe that Constantine was a Christian and he was the first. And I believe that this conversion happened in 312 AD. 312. 312, which was when he saw the vision of Christ and the Cairo mm-hmm. and the Inox of Vincas. To me, that was the turning point for him. Right. Because after then, next year, you get the toleration where Christianity becomes legal. Then it's just more and more and more in the favor of Christianity and the not favor of paganism mm-hmm. so it just gets more and more and more gradual from that point onwards yeah from that point on it's just christianity for constantine yeah it's yeah so that's when i believe he became christian mm. Mm.
0: now i'm not too um convinced at the moment i think i'm gonna have to do more reading once you've done your um dissertation on this i would think it'd be really good to have a read and then uh I can uh, weigh in with my opinion, yep. but I don't think I have I have enough uh, resources available to me at the moment to make a decision on this. But nonetheless, I think it's really interesting. And whether he becomes a Christian or not, um, what Constantine does is he breaks the mold of the Roman Empire yes. and completely changes it for future generations. And even if he wasn't Christian, the rest of the Roman empires after him, apart from the one, were pagan. I would have to. Believe that they have no political motive to being Christian, but it was more about the faith was now there and Christianity was beyond uh, uh, the ways of political tools and was now a way to just believe in it in a way. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the AIQ podcast. Thank you very much to Ozzy Major for coming on and talking about Constantine and Christianity. We'll be going back to more topics within the Roman Empire and... The Greek world uh, soon. So thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye.